This is Our Voices. I'm Mario Trimble. In order to be a place where everyone in our community feels valued and connected, we first have to ensure everyone believes they belong. These are Our Voices, a joint podcast production from the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusivity Joint Steering Committee. Our Voices shines a light on the unique stories, experiences, and backgrounds of our member leaders so that we can help each other walk together. Nicole Sparaza is a solo family law practitioner, second vice president of the Denver Bar Association, the chair of the CBA Litigation Section Council, and past president of the Asian Pacific Bar Association of Colorado. Clearly, she's an active leader in the legal community. In this interview with our own Linda Moss and Mallory Revel, Nicole shares what led her to the legal profession through personal stories of growing up as a first-generation Korean-American and the struggles with bridging the gap between two different cultures. In her interview, Nicole highlights the power of inclusivity and the importance of community. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Our Voices. I'm Mallory Revel with Foster Graham, Milstein, and Kalisher, and I'm here with... I'm Linda Moss. I'm a family law attorney with Sederosh Smith and Schellenberger. And today we are very excited to be interviewing. I'm Nicole Sparaza. I am a family law attorney in the Denver metro area. I have my own firm, the law office of Nicole Sparaza. I'm also the second vice president for the Denver Bar Association and the chair of the CBA litigation section council. And I'm also a past president of the Asian Pacific American Bar Association of Colorado. So let's jump right in. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about who you were, who you are, and who you're going to be. So jumping right in, tell us about who you were. Well, to start out, um, I'm first generation Korean American for my family. Uh, My mom and my biological father immigrated here right before I was born. My older sister was born in Seoul, South Korea. And I was born in Monterey, California. Um, We lived in Los Angeles at the time, right after I was born. And eventually, my parents got divorced. And my mom ended up remarrying when I was about six years old. He adopted my sister and I. And we kind of lived and rode off into the sunset from there. Short <laughs> podcast. And <laughs> <End> scene. <laughs> and they lived happily ever after. Tell us a little bit about growing up first generation America in Los Angeles. So it's interesting. We actually moved around quite a bit. So um, I don't remember much of my time in LA since I was so young. But after my mom remarried, we lived in Marina, and then we lived in Prunedale, California. I was in elementary school while we lived in Prunedale, and my adoptive father, who later adopted my sister and I, Mm -hmm. um, he was a civilian. He was he worked, he served in the military and the army for about 20 years. And then he retired and he worked as a civilian at the time that my parents got together. So he was working at a, as a civilian in Fort Ord, um, which then Fort Ord ended up shutting down. So we packed up and moved cross country to Fort Benning, Georgia. Oh, wow. And that's where he was transferred. So we were there for a couple of years and um, ended up in Colorado because he always wanted to retire and move out to Colorado. We had vacationed here a little bit um, in the early 90s and 
So he finally retired and we made the move and we lived in Aurora for a couple of years when I was in, or for a couple of months as a transition when I was in seventh grade. And then we lived in Loveland and then we moved up to Summit County and I was there for the rest of eighth grade and all of high school. What was it like living there? Summit County, it was a really hard place to grow up in at the time. And I'm not going to, you know, try to glamorize it at all because for me it was a very difficult um a a difficult place to grow up just simply because Mm -hmm. at the time that my family moved up there there really wasn't that much diversity Mm -hmm. um and so it at that point it was my sixth school that I had been to so I was pretty accustomed to being friendly and outgoing and making friends and Mm -hmm. I just remember my first day there, I walked up to somebody who was in front of me in the lunch line and I said, I tapped her on the shoulder and I said, hey, um, I'm new. Can I eat lunch with you? And she turned around. She scanned me up and down and just flipped her head, didn't say a word, just flipped her hair and turned back around. And I was like, is that a no? (laughs) That's very mean, girls. But it was it was kind of the way that that community was. It was very close knit. It was Mm -hmm. very small, Mm -hmm. um, and it it wasn't very welcoming to other people, including you know, especially people of different backgrounds, and Mm -hmm. um, and it was. It was a struggle. Like there were times where when I would receive, you know, hate notes in my locker about you know, if we see you in the lunchroom, we're going to beat you up to, oh. you know, it was just it was kind of crazy. And I think middle school in particular is a really hard time because a lot of people are trying to figure out uh they're first of all figuring out popularity. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, they're figuring out their bodies and hormones and it's, I think, a rough patch for everybody, but it was really hard in it being a new person, a diverse person in that particular community at the time, just because they're really, not only was it somewhat unwelcoming, but it also just didn't have any diversity. So there were lots of days when I ate lunch by myself in the bathroom, which oh. sounds really cliche, mm-hmm. <laughs> but... You know, there were just times when I really didn't want to have to deal with or handle or had the capacity to mm-hmm. put on a smile and pretend like I was happy. And yeah. um, and that was really difficult. To, but I would say probably by my junior, senior year, it started changing pretty significantly. My sophomore year, there was a large influx of Latin American and um, Mexicans coming into the Summit County community. Um to take a lot of those blue collar jobs that needed to be filled. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that took a lot of the heat off of me because there were a lot of other people that that the community focused their attention on. And I think that it has calmed down, I would hope, significantly in the past, you know, 20 years since I've been there or so forth. Um, But it was a really difficult place to be. But by the time that I was junior, senior in high school, I was more or less accepted, um, I guess, for lack of a better way to put it. And my life was a lot easier at that point because I didn't have to worry about um, whether or not I was going to eat lunch in the cafeteria that Mm. day. 
But it it still wasn't a place where I really felt like I belonged, that I, Mm -hmm. you know, was one with a community. It always was very noticeable that I wasn't one of the Summit County kids. Like, for example, there were a multitude of people who called me Chelsea because um, there was one other Asian girl who was about the same grade that I was. She may have been a grade below me, but... She was also um, pretty severely mentally handicapped in the sense that she had a lot of special needs. Um, But since we were both Asians, you know, we were one and the same. So there wasn't a day that I went through those halls that I wasn't called Chelsea at some point. And I don't think that it was malicious, but it was just very clear that I guess I wasn't or it felt like I wasn't worth the time. Yeah, like they weren't taking the energy to even try to figure out who you were. They just said, okay, you look something like this girl Chelsea. And so you're Chelsea. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it was it was a hard I mean, I dealt with a lot of demons during that time, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a difficult period. Because like I said, not only are you kind of trying to figure out yourself and discovering yourself. I mean, I don't think any of us know who we truly are in high school or middle school. Mm -hmm. Um, But to just add all of that additional stuff and pressure on top of it was, I mean, it was really just a difficult time in my life where I really questioned a lot of things about life and a lot of things about my own life and my own existence. And there was... I remember a turning point for me was probably my freshman or sophomore year in high school. And we had this guest speaker, which (laughs) shout out to, uh, you know, all school, what are they called? Like, not conferences, but when they bring the entire school into an auditorium and you have a guest speaker. Yeah, like an assembly. Assembly, yeah. Yeah. Um, all of us, you know, loathe all school assemblies, but shout out to them because one of them really impacted me in a positive way. We had an all school assembly and we all gathered in the auditorium and this guest speaker was supposed to be a motivational speaker of some sort. And I remember he took out this measuring tape and he said, you know, the average lifespan is, I don't know, 87 years or whatever it is. And he stretched out this measuring tape all around the auditorium, 87 feet, which was substantial. It was around a large portion of the auditorium. And he went up to the portion of the measuring tape that was between, I think, 14 and 18. And he said, this is high school. (laughs) Out of this entire life, out of this entire life, this entire measuring tape, these four years are your Mm. high school years. This time is in no way representative of your life or who you're going to be in the future or the life that you're going to lead in the future. And for somebody in my position who did feel very othered and very picked on um, and very outsider, Mm -hmm. it was really impactful for me. And it was the moment where a light kind of went off in my mind and I thought, okay, I can make it through. I can make it through the next two, three years. I can make it through. I can figure out what I want to do and what I want to be. But this is all temporary and I can I can do it. 
to throw in one more cliche, it gets better. Yeah. <laughs> it did, and it absolutely did uh, get better. <laughs> you mentioned feeling, understandably, like you didn't belong in that school. Um, did you find a sense of belonging in another community, another school, another experience? You know, I I do now. I definitely feel like I've been fortunate enough to build a very solid community and network. Um, but I would say that I was lost for a really long time. I think that when you go through adolescence and you go through a similar experience to what I had where you just, I mean, you're desperately just trying to fit in. So you're not really focusing on who you are and Mm -hmm. what's important to you and what'll make you happy and what makes you tick and even exploring hobbies. I didn't really do any of that because I was so focused on trying to be the same and trying to fit in and trying to, you know, not be different, that I had a lot of discovering to do when I graduated from high school. And so I don't think that I really found a close-knit type community, um, mostly because, to be quite honest, I was pretty insecure. And Mm -hmm. so I more or less, I think I got myself into some situations where I had some relationships with people who weren't the healthiest Mm -hmm. um for in quotes for whatever healthy really is (laughs) um and I think mostly because you know those people showed me some type of love or affection or you know acceptance to some level that made me feel really really good inside it was you know the feeling that I was craving that I wanted to be liked I wanted to be accepted and so I think I latched on to some relationships whether or friendships or otherwise that particularly didn't help me or serve me in figuring out my independence and who I was because I was just so desperate for acceptance at that point. Mm-hmm. And so it did take me a while and it was a process, certainly <laughs> not, <laughs> didn't come out unscathed, mm-hmm. but it was a process that I definitely had to go through and it, I took the time that I needed, which is probably in hindsight longer than I ideally <laughs> would want it to take. Um, but eventually it did lead me to law school and it led me to really finding a community of people that I feel incredibly fortunate to have with me and by my side and in my tribe day in and day out. Mm -hmm. So other than law school, um, did you find any kind of sense of belonging or community while you were still in high school? When I was in high school, yeah, I, um, I was a part of the speech and debate team in Summit County, also, you know, very popular with the popular kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, there was actually in Vail, there's Battle Mountain High School. And for some reason, and I don't know why, but these Battle Mountain High School kids really took me under their wing. Um, I don't know whether, I, I honestly don't know the reason why, but... I always looked forward to those speech meets because there was this solidarity and this inclusion. Um, And I don't even know how to phrase it. I just, they welcomed me with open arms. And I'm not even quite sure how that relationship manifested, to be honest with you. But it was, it felt great. It felt awesome to just be accepted and to feel like, I could be a part of a team and I could be a part of a community and I could just be myself and have fun, which wasn't, again, something that I really felt like I could do a lot of times when I was growing up. 
Um, and it was fantastic. Even the Battle Mountain High School speech coach came up to me during state the state competition and said, you know, my kids have never done this before. They have never just had a friend from another school who they carried as part of their own. When you made that finals list for impromptu speaking, like they cheered mm. just as loud, if not louder, than Aww. for our kids. And I just want you to know that. I w- just want you to know that you have a community here and that you are always welcome anytime. That's amazing. And it, I mean, I'm getting teary. I just yeah. thinking about it. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> and I wasn't there. <laughs> because it was just, I think that it was at least the time that I can remember in high school where I truly did feel just accepted. What a testament to the power of inclusivity. And even for that coach, I mean, I totally wasn't expecting her for to have a sidebar with me. And yeah. out of nowhere, she just kind of pulled me aside and said, listen, like, I want you to know. And that was really impactful. And talking about kind of where you've come from and what makes you you, I know you have a really special relationship with your mom. Uh, would you share I with us a little bit I do have a very special relationship with my mom, but it hasn't been for a lack of <laughs> blood, sweat, and tears. <laughs> mm. <laughs> and I think that a lot of that is just because she grew up completely differently mm-hmm. than you know, I have in the States. She grew up in a farming family in South Korea. She has um, six brothers and sisters. She actually had more, but a few of them passed away early Mm. on during the Korean, or I don't think it was a Korean war, but some wars that were happening. Um, So she lived a farm life. Um, There were a lot of very traditional gender roles that were within her upbringing, for example, like she, women weren't allowed to ride bikes. And so she more or less kind of stole her brother's bike one day <laughs> to try to learn how to ride it. And mm-hmm. she got caught and beaten pretty severely, mm-hmm. to be honest with you. Um, and so there was just very strict rules that needed to be followed with the way that she was raised. And I think another very important thing, at least with the Korean culture and a lot of Asian cultures, honestly, is kind of the hierarchy and respecting your elders. And so I think part of the disconnect that we've had a lot growing up is that um, I wasn't necessarily trying to disrespect my elder. (laughs) I wasn't necessarily (laughs) trying to disrespect my mom. But I was raised in the States where, you know, you're curious, you're you kind of have that freedom of asking questions and exploring things and asking why and um, kind of building those reasoning and I guess, logic, rational skills. Um, and that wasn't really appreciated <laughs> by my mom at home. Sure. It was like I was questioning, you mm-hmm. know, her um, authority or, you know, I was being disrespectful. And that was a really hard line to toe because mm-hmm. it was, I did feel like for a long period of time, not only was I clamoring for, you know, acceptance from the people that I went to school with, but I also felt like I couldn't really truly be myself at home either because I needed to be that model daughter who abided by the rules, who didn't question things, who um, just did what I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think that um, as I got older, my mom and I have really worked on our relationship. And I have to say that, like, I have to give her props, too, because I know it wasn't easy for her. And I know that in a large part, um, in a very large part, you know, she kind of feels like she's Owen doing, right? Like, I went through the entire process. I was always respecting my elders. I never went out of line. And now I have this kid who, you know, <laughs> when I'm supposed to be <laughs> the one who has, is the end all be all of everything, who's mm. questioning me, who's, you know, not automatically assuming that I have the right answers to everything. Right. Um, and so that's been a lot of our struggle as I've gotten older as well, is trying to balance, you know, like my empathy and understanding for where she's coming from, which is nowhere close near to 100% mm-hmm. at any given time. And her kind of trying to give me the benefit that when I do ask questions, it's not necessarily calling her into question, mm-hmm. but I just want to learn and I want to know more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like that's... Uh, difficult to being a lawyer and the way yeah. that we're retrained to think in law school and, and questioning a lot of things. And so um, I don't think that that has helped the situation. Mm. Um, but I do think that we've come a long way and we are very, very close. Um, and she, of course, as my mom has always been there for me, has always been an advocate. And um, and it, it's probably one of my greatest accomplishments, honestly, is my relationship with my mom, because Mm -hmm. it hasn't been as easy. And it still isn't easy. But it is incredibly rewarding. It sounds like there's a little bit of a line between rebelling and progressing. And you both (laughs) had to bring some grace in to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's funny, because I mean, obviously, I like to be right, too. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't get into these struggles with, you know, she feels like she's entitled to be right, because she's an elder, and I should just defer to her. And I'm like, no, like, I think I'm right. Mm -hmm. And to be fair, I think I am right sometimes. Yeah. That is very right sometimes. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. So um, where did you end up going to college? So I actually, it's funny, because after I graduated from high school in Summit County, I honestly wanted to go as far as I could go without leaving. Don't blame you. Seems pretty fair. (laughs) (laughs) So I looked on a map and I was like, okay, where's the furthest I can go? Uh (laughs) And Florida was the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Yeah. Polar opposite. (laughs) So I went to a private, small private business university in West Palm Beach, Florida for a couple of years um, on scholarships. And then I also played tennis down there. I'm not very good. Don't. don't. So the scholarship was was for academics, not tennis? No, it was for tennis. It was a big tennis scholarship. Yeah, you were a little bit good. (laughs) Um, I I mean, I wasn't terrible, but also I I wasn't anything. (laughs) You're not Serena Williams. I was no Serena Williams. Correct. (laughs) Fair enough. Um, and so I went down to Florida for my first couple of years and then ended up coming back to Colorado and finished at CU Boulder, um, right? Pretty much. Well, I think because not all of your credits transfer. So mm-hmm. I ended up spending two and a half years at CU Boulder to finish out a degree in business. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. What was your minor in? I didn't have a minor. 
It was mostly let's graduate from college. Yeah. <laughs> That's fair I did. Enough. I did have a minor when I was at um, Northwood University, the business university in West Palm Beach, Florida, mostly because it was a business-based university. So I actually did get my AA there, my associates there in um, business management, and then a minor in marketing. Mm. But when I did the transfer, I just transferred over for business management. Mm-hmm. And what made you decide to go to law school? So um, it's interesting because I think about this question a lot, and I thought about this question a lot when I was in law school, because that's usually the softball question that you get. Why did you go to law school? And I really struggled with it because I felt like I needed this one pivotal time in my life where I thought, this is it. I'm going to be a lawyer. And that I was just, your moment. That yeah. was my moment. That was my aha moment. That was going to set the trajectory of the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. And I never had that moment. It was slowly a progression of dumb luck (laughs) (laughs) and circumstance, to be honest. So when I was um, 16 years old, I think I was 16. I may have been 14. I was in high school. Um, And my mom has a significant language barrier. I think that you can still easily understand her, but it does take a little bit more effort and work because she does have an accent. Sure. And she worked as a nighttime stalker at Safeway. So she would stock groceries at nighttime. And the particular incident, at least that made me feel like I wanted to do something in my life that would make a difference, was this one incident that my mom had. She was um, at work. And her manager was giving out aisle assignments. Like you have this aisle, you're stocking aisle four and five. Mm -hmm. Uh, She didn't quite hear what aisle assignments that she had because her manager had turned her head away. And my mom said, you know, I'm sorry I didn't hear you. What aisle assignments do I have? And the manager just snapped. And she grabbed my mom by the ear. What? And drug her down the store, screaming in her ear, you have this aisle. You don't have this aisle. You have this aisle. Do you understand that you have that aisle? And and just, um, it was horrific. And after that incident, you know, my mom came home, obviously, just crushed and devastated, mm-hmm. horrified, embarrassed, um, mm-hmm. all of the things. And I didn't know what to do. I was in high school. Um, I didn't know how to help her. Uh, my dad said, you know, obviously you need to take this to the union because Safeway, at least at that time, had a union. And so my mom did, but she really didn't want to because, you know, she's an immigrant. She didn't want to rock the boat. Yeah, she didn't yeah. want to make her work life even harder, which she understood the concept that everybody would still have to treat her the same and couldn't create a hostile work environment based on her complaint. But Mm -hmm. she certainly didn't believe it. You know, she didn't believe that everybody would treat her the same after this incident. Mm -hmm. Um, But she did report it, I think mostly because my dad made her. (laughs) And um, they investigated it. Of course, there was some denial. But because it's a grocery store, they have the cameras on at all times. Mm -hmm. And so they pulled the feed from that night. And sure enough, Mm, what my mom reported had indeed happened. And... Um, there was, you know, some firings that happened with the management team. And my mom still doesn't think that the workplace returned to the way that it was before. I mean, she says that nobody was mean to her and everybody almost made a point to say hi to her. Um, 
but it wasn't the same as it was prior to the incident happening. And I think a really unfortunate part is that my mom blames herself or bears a mm. lot of that, a lot of that incident that happened on herself, you know, and being an immigrant and having an accent and not, you know, being as acclimated to this culture as, you know, I am being born here. And so I think that was the hardest part for me was just seeing the way that it internalized in her and the self-blame that she kind of inflicted on herself. And during that moment, I did have that first realization that, okay, like, this isn't right. I don't know what I can do about it, but I certainly want to figure something out in the future that's going to help me make a difference. Um and that was pretty ambiguous, right? Like, I don't know what make a difference really meant at the time, but mm-hmm. I, I certainly felt powerless and I felt like my family felt powerless. And that's a feeling that I never wanted to have again. So I kind of went off to college with this idea that I was going to be somebody, right? I was, you know, going to do even better in school, not just because it was expected from my family as the model minority or the community, but because I actually wanted to do well, right? Like I wanted to succeed. I wanted to figure this out. I wanted to make a difference. And so I went off to college with kind of that mindset of, you know, wanting to to do something and to succeed. Um, and I worked when I transferred back to CU Boulder, I worked full time. I worked as the front office manager for the Hampton Inn in Louisville. Mm-hmm. Very glamorous. <laughs> <laughs> and um, at the same time, I was getting my degree in undergraduate and business management at CU Boulder. And I was a full time student there. And I just kind of worked my tail off and ended up actually working at Nordstrom for a while because. Honestly, I figured if I worked in retail, I would figure out what I wa- wanted to do with my life sooner rather than later. <laughs> Fascinating. Did you figure out that you didn't want to work in retail? <laughs> I did. Shockingly. Really hold your feet to the fire there. I like it. <laughs> so I was like, if I work in retail, I know that I'm going to figure something out with my life yeah. <laughs> because I'm not going to want to do that for forever. Yeah. So I worked in Nordstrom for a few years. I actually sat for the LSATs in between a double shift um, oh, that wow. I was working at Nordstrom. Jeez. Yeah, and I was kind of like, I was getting promoted at Nordstrom, and I didn't say no to the promotions, but at the same time, I knew that it's not where I wanted to be in the future. Right. So I was like, okay, before I get trapped by yeah. <laughs> the retail machine, I, I need to figure this out. So mm-hmm. um, at the time, Nordstrom really coveted having both experience at the full line, which is, you know, the Nordstrom at Park Meadows or Flatirons or Cherry mm-hmm. Creek. And then also having the discount experience, which is Nordstrom Rack. Right, right. So um, during the time that I sat for the LSATs, I was on my rack rotation. And I ran the women's division at the rack at Flatirons, which is now off of 16th Street Mall in Boulder. But Mm -hmm. at the time, it was at Flatirons. Um, And I opened the store. I left at lunch. I took an extended lunch to sit for the LSATs wow. and I came back and I closed the store. Oh my, <laughs> that's I, impressive. I kept my fingers crossed. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And luckily I did well enough on the LSATs to to obviously get into law school coupled with my GPA. And, yeah. but and so I said, yell okay. at anyone that day? I did not. I mean, possibly it was the rack. Like, <laughs> I mean, I want to say I didn't yell at anybody that day, but it's it's not it's not impossible that that may have happened. 
<laughs> but if I day. did yell at anybody, it would have been very rational. That's right. And it would have been akin to a logic question. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I miss the logic games. <laughs> So, you're going to law school. How did you decide where you were going to go to law school? Um, Well, I knew that I wanted to stay in state. So, I did apply to both CU and DU, and I ended up choosing DU, honestly, because I got in outright. Um, Mm. At CU, I was on the wait list, and I kind of wanted to be able to solidify what I was going to do and had a plan for it. So, I went ahead and I accepted. Um, And then I started law school. I quit Nordstrom about a week before law school orientation started um and the rest was history (laughs) (laughs) did you this is our 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 big question did you like law school you know i liked parts of law school i'm gonna hedge it um i think there are like two people who have liked law school You know, I think that it was also a time in my life when I was creating this independence for myself as well and kind of figuring out who I was as a person. So I think the process that a lot of people went through in college, maybe I was definitely a late bloomer and I didn't start figuring out until I was in law school. Um, And so I do have a certain appreciation for law school in the sense that it was a huge time of personal growth and development for me. It also required a huge reckoning, right? Because, (laughs) I mean, law school is a whole nother beast. And I had never obviously been in a climate where everybody around me is smart. (laughs) (laughs) Everybody around me has done well in school. Mm -hmm. They're intelligent. They've Mm -hmm. at least done well on standardized tests, if nothing else. (laughs) And everyone around you knows exactly what they're doing. Exactly. Or at least will tell you that they do. And I believe them, Mallory. I believed them. (laughs) They're convincing about it. Yeah, when do you get to the point where you're like, wait, none of these people know anything. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, I mean, I do have some appreciation for law school because it was a huge time in my life for me personally. Um, But, I mean, obviously it was still law school. Like, I had never... I thinking like a lawyer at the time or the way that they wanted you to think was not natural for me. I know it was for some people. And I just wasn't one of those people. And honestly, I also wasn't used to not getting straight A's. Like, that had never happened. Like, I worked a full time job during my undergrad and still carried a full course load. And I still got straight A's. Like, it's an identity crisis. It was a, exactly. It was an identity crisis of like epic proportions (laughs) because you're grappling with how to refocus that energy and trying to think and learn and answer the way that you're quote unquote supposed to. Mm -hmm. And that was really difficult. But I did make some amazing friendships in law school that I will, I, I was so incredibly fortunate with my law school experience to be able to walk out with just handfuls of people who had my back, who were just good people who I talked to today. Yeah. Um, And I think that was very unique for our class as well, because I don't I've at least a lot of people that I've talked to don't necessarily have that echoing appreciation for their law school classmates. Um, But I I really do. It was just it was a group of just fantastic, good people. Yeah. So skipping ahead, you have your own law firm. 
Um, what gave you the motivation or the strength to get out there on your own, hang your shingle and make it work? <laughs> I feel like a lot of my stories are dumb luck and circumstance. <laughs> Perfect. I love a theme. I love a good theme. Um, but really, it was just the circumstances at the time because I was working with a firm. It was an eat what you kill model. So um, I did have a base of clients and cases that I was working on. And I was the only family law attorney and I was one of two litigators at that firm as well. So when that firm decided to close down, it wasn't, on paper, it wouldn't seem like it was that hard of a transition to make it from that type of a model to a solo model. It was only because I was 38 weeks pregnant at the time. Oh, yeah. So that was, that was difficult because I no longer had support staff. I no longer had a paralegal. I had to float these active cases that I had, which I did have a plan for before the firm closed down, but obviously didn't. And it was just a party of one and a newborn. <laughs> <laughs> The newborn can't answer the phone. Oh. Correct. He's actually very unproductive. <laughs> As they tend to be. Very needy. So um, that was particularly difficult just because I did have active cases that I had to work on at yeah. the time and have a newborn um, and kind of deal with all of the additional things and the lack of sleep and yeah the cluster feeding and all of that good stuff that come along with newborns. And it was my firstborn too. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I was hypersensitive to, (laughs) oh my goodness, is this going to, you know, ruin my child? Am (laughs) I going to, you know? (laughs) And I am really curious, and I know we're tight on time now, but I actually was just listening to the New and Expecting Mothers CLE the other day. And so I'm curious if you have any, like, tips or anything really valuable you learned as a a new mother who is, you know, really vitally uh, involved in your practice? Honestly, I think you just need to, I mean, it's it's not helpful advice. It's literally just <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> keep your head down and get through it. Like at that point, hopefully you've been practicing for long enough that you know what's urgent and what's not urgent. Um, mm. And I think that's really what helped me. Like I knew at that time, because I had been practicing for six, seven years, um, what needed to be done immediately and what didn't need to be done immediately. And I kind of, I don't want to say that I bought my time that way because it sounds like I was being irresponsible. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think that it was a skill that definitely helped me in making it through because at the end of the day, you know, it was was difficult because I had this new being, this life that completely relied on me for livelihood (laughs) and everything and at the same time I had this practice where you know legal malpractice is a really real thing I didn't want to risk my livelihood and my future Um, and so it was a really difficult balancing act and the only other thing that I would say is that I do wish that I reached out to people more Mm. because for example I had my first court appearance six months postpartum or six weeks postpartum. Oh, okay. Yeah. Six weeks? Six weeks, yeah. Wow. I found my loosest suit jacket that would fit and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> went to court with my pump. Oh. <laughs> um, and it wasn't, it was, a, it, it was like a status conference. Like it really wasn't a huge sure. court appearance. Yeah. Um, 
And one of my good friends, Melina Hernandez, mm. Judge Hernandez, mm-hmm. um, told me afterwards, she said, why didn't you just file a motion to attend remotely? <laughs> because I guarantee that if you put in there that you just gave birth to a kid six weeks ago, like, there would have been no question that that motion would have been granted. Oh, good <laughs> to know now. On the judge, I think, but yes. <laughs> and I thought, oh my goodness, that is something that I absolutely should have done. And I think that had I maybe been uh, reached out to my community a little bit more, and instead of been in the whole like I just have to get put my head down and get through this yeah. by myself, and kind of tapping those resources instead and that advice, I think I it would have helped me significantly. Yeah. Instead of you know charging the path on my own and just saying this is me, I got to do it all on my own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know that your mom's experience at Safeway isn't her only. Um, experience with discrimination in the workforce. Um, I know that you've personally had experiences since high school um, that have been negative. So none of this is new to you. Um, But as a society, our attention right now is really on hate crimes against Asian Americans. And so that's been in the news more. Again, not new to you, unfortunately, but it's a focus for us right now um, as a greater community. What do you want the community to know about your experiences, how we can support the Asian American community, anything that you would like to share with us? That's a tough question. That you're willing to share, I should say. (laughs) I appreciate that. I'm a pretty open book, I think. But I think that the reason um, why this particular time has been hard for me personally is not just because I'm a part of that affected community, but because it's really prompted me to to think about a lot of a lot of things to be honest with you yeah. think about the impact on me on my mother on my son um who's two and a half years old and how things might manifest for him in the future and that's a lot of weight yeah. and it's really difficult honestly to reconcile the reality that I grew up with in Summit County with um, the things that I told myself about this world as I got older, that it was better and more realized Mm. and um, progressive. And I think that some of those things are true, right? I I don't think that we're seeing um, this, seeing, you know, a regression, hopefully, in our society, but more... I guess, the boldness and the Mm -hmm. comfort level of those who are willing to um, to do these violent acts Mm -hmm. and to um, kind of, yeah, perpetrate on, you know, not just Asian Americans and elderly Asian Americans, Mm -hmm. um, but also just the biopic community. And. It's been a struggle for me, and I was talking to one of my friends the other day about this because he called to check in on me to see how I was doing, and I honestly didn't know what to tell him because I said, you know, when um, George Floyd happened, when, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement really started gaining ground significantly last year, mm-hmm. you know, I was, you know, one of those that were like, let's do this. I'm enraged. Like, let's create change. Let's let's show our voices. Let's, you know. Solidarity. Let's do all of this. Let's solidarity. Exactly. And when it came to the mass shooting in Georgia, I was devastated. 
I was not, you know, let's go, let's charge that I thought that I would be, which is usually what my reactions are is, you know, when I encounter a situation that's, you know, hostile, or that I perceive to be really unfair. You know, I'm like, let's go, let's charge. And it was interesting, because that was not my reaction when Mm -hmm. I heard about the shooting. I was just, I was distraught. I was devastated. I couldn't sleep. Mm. Um, And it was really difficult. I really didn't want to do anything. There were a couple of organizations that I take leadership positions in Mm -hmm. who reached out and said, can you help us write a statement of solidarity? And quite frankly, I said, no, I don't. Like, that's the last thing that I want to do right now because I'm really having a hard time. Yeah. And I think that was some self-realization for myself and kind of the space that I needed to give myself to be in at the time. But it also was written with a lot of guilt, too, because I felt like I should be doing more. I felt Mm. like I should be assembling the troops. I felt like I should be more involved. I felt like I should have been writing that statement of solidarity. I felt like I should have been taking action. When you just needed the grace to give yourself to just mourn. And I have to say that reminds me a lot of a conversation that we had um, with another interviewee who was saying that was was talking about the role that black people have been had been put into last year where um, there was a lot of expectation and um, a lot of weight being put on them by people of other races who were saying, teach us how to act, tell us what to do. Um, kind of advocate for yourself and it came down to a point of having to say I'm exhausted and I'm scared and I'm angry and I can't take on this role I don't have the energy to take on this role for you you need to do the work to help me and it sounds like that's kind of a similar role for you where you're feeling guilt over feeling the energy or the weight from other people of wanting you to help yourself when they need to be helping you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's also hard too, right? Because I, I get that these people wanted to help, like, and they thought that I would be the natural fit for, you know, writing a statement of solidarity is the primary example that I'm giving. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, I did take that space. I did decline and I said no and yeah. um, respectfully. And it was something that I was proud of myself for doing because I'm not quite one to say no all that, all, all that often because I just put my head down and I feel like I can just get through it if mm-hmm. I need to. Um, but my friend told me and he said, listen, Nicole, like we're all going through these stages of grief and they're unpredictable and they're all different. And I guarantee you that the times when you need to give yourself the grace in this space, somebody else will pick up the ball. Mm -hmm. And it was true because somebody else wrote that statement of solidarity, AAPI heritage. And I wrote her a separate email of gratitude after and I said, thanks for picking up that ball. I just couldn't do it. Yeah. Thank you for being willing to share. Um, It's so important for listeners to kind of get a better sense of your perspective. And I've learned from it. So thank you. Thank you for having me. So in closing, what's next for you? <laughs> Who are you going to be? The world. I'm conquering the world. I just Perfect. need to get Pinky and the Brain on my side. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what's next for me. Um, I'm in a, in a really great space, in a really, really great headspace. 
Um, generally, I have a fantastic support system. And um, I guess, I mean, I'm going to ride this wave as long as I can. <laughs> Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure to chat with you, and we so appreciate it. Thank you for having thank me. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been Our Voices. For more information on today's guest or to get involved, please check out the CBA podcast page at cobar.org slash podcast. That's C-O-B-A-R dot org slash podcast. This podcast series was created by members of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. Our Voices is a collaborative effort of the EDI Joint Steering Committee messaging team, including Mallory Revel, Linda Moss, Bonnie Schreiner, Mallory Hasbrook, Mo Watson, Mario Trimble, Courtney Holm, and Emmy Lopez, with our CBA Communications Team Director, Heather Folker, and Manager, Charles McGarvey. Our recording engineer is Rick Pontelion of Lionsbridge Recording. Our producer and editor is Courtney Holm, with theme and introduction by Mario Trimble. This podcast is made possible because of the support of the Colorado and Denver Bar Associations. On behalf of all of us, thanks for listening to Our Voices. Thank you.